You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, guys, thanks so much for being here with us um, another Sunday in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, as I always say, I get so much joy out of uh, this time getting to be here together with all of you. Um, It's exciting to see things um, start to change and see plans underway, new directions here um, in our country. Um, And as I said last week, while for many of us in this church, this has been a very hopeful time, um, for many others in our country, it's a, a mournful time. And so I'm not sure if you got to see uh, any of the inauguration on um, Wednesday. One of the things that I, I really loved and resonated with me throughout that was a constant theme of coming back together, um, of unity and reuniting. And so that is my hope moving forward. I know that we are a church that um, is pretty progressive in general, and that for many of us, we might find ourselves now in echo chambers um, that uh, share just beliefs that are similar to ours. I'm really looking forward to what the next four years can look like for us moving forward in a healing process and um, yeah, helping us as a country maybe not be so polarized and have some healing. At the same time, I know that doesn't erase anything that's happened and it doesn't mean that we don't hold to um, the values of love and justice and hope and peacemaking that are so important to us. So wherever that is, wherever that leaves you in relationships with other people in your lives and families, um, I'm so glad that we get to be a place here where we can talk about those things and where where we can continue to wrestle with what it means for us to embody goodness and wholeness and truth and the light and love of Christ. Um, So with that, I wanted to start us this morning with a um, very short uh, call to worship. Um, and we don't typically do a lot of call to worships here, but if you come from a more liturgical setting, it's a way um, of us joining together in unison to kind of call out this space that we're creating, which is especially important as we're meeting virtually and uh, none of us are are together. Well, some of you might be with others in the same rooms or uh, in different rooms in your same houses uh, on different screens. Um, But uh, I thought this was a nice way to kind of remember that the space that's sacred here is the space that we make because we all come together. So even when when we're far apart, um, we're here in this sacred space, um, this service for Central Avenue Church. So I'm gonna share my screen with you. This is a responsive, um, uh, responsive call to worship. And it's very short today. Sisters, brothers, people in Christ, let's join together in this call to worship. This is the ancient cry of the prophets. This is the holy proclamation of our time. This is the call upon our lives. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We will keep laboring together to make it so. No act of love is made in vain. Harboring each other, let us keep reaching for God's future. Spirit of compassion, when your kingdom feels impossibly far, you encourage us in hope 
that is neither naive or escapist. In grief and loss, you draw us toward each other, strengthening our relationships, deepening our connections, building our power as we grow closer. Keep us from rushing too quickly through what makes us human and helps us connect with the humanity of others. Amen. I wanted to share this morning um, a, a prayer that, uh, that was part of the inauguration. This is actually the benediction that Reverend Sylvester Beeman, who is the pastor of Bethel AME Church, um, gave. And he is a longtime friend of Joe Biden. And, um, and he gave this prayer as the benediction um, for the inauguration service. And um, it was um, something that I think was really moving and powerful. I wanted to share it this morning. Um, I also wanted to note that I have mixed feelings in general, as I know some of you may also, about the bringing together of church and state. Um, and so I just wanted to acknowledge that and take from that what you will. Um, we are not a Christian nation, and in my opinion, I don't think that we should be, but I do wish that we could embody more the values of love, hope, peace, compassion, and justice that we see in the person of Jesus. Um, so I hold those tensions, and I know many of you here do as well, but I wanted to share this, um, a prayer that took place as part of a swearing-in ceremony um, for the President of the United States. Um, I think they're hopeful words for us moving forward. Well, let's make this um, our prayer. And as it applies in the beginning to um, the President and our uh, Vice President, um, this also applies to each one of us. Let's pray. God, we gather under the beauty of your holiness and the holiness of your beauty. We seek your face, your smile, your warm embrace. We petition you once more in this celebration. We pray for divine favor upon our President Joe Biden and our First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden and their family. We further ask that you would extend the same favor upon our Vice President, Kamala D. Harris, and our second gentleman, Doug Aimhoff, and their family. More than ever, more than ever, they and our nation need you. We need you, for in you we discover our common humanity. In our common humanity, we will seek out the wounded and bind their wounds. We will seek healing for those who are sick and diseased. We will mourn our dead. We will befriend the lonely and the least and the left out. We will share our abundance with those who are hungry. We will do justly to the oppressed, acknowledge sin and seek forgiveness, thus grasping reconciliation. In discovering our humanity, we will seek the good in and for all our neighbors. We will love the unlovable, remove the stigma of the so-called untouchables. We will care for our most vulnerable, our children, the elderly, the emotionally challenged, and the poor. We will seek rehabilitation beyond correction. We will extend opportunity to those locked out of opportunity. We will make friends of our enemies. We will make friends of our enemies. People, your people, shall no longer raise up weapons against one another. We will rather use our resources for the national good and become a beacon of life and goodwill to the world. And neither shall we learn hatred anymore. We will lie down in peace and not make our neighbors afraid. In you, O oh God, we discover our humanity. And in humanity, we discover our commonness beyond the differences of color, creed, origin, 
political party, ideology, geography, and personal preferences. We will become greatest stewards of your environment, preserving the land, reaping from it a sustainable harvest and securing its wonder and miracle giving power for generations to come. This is our benediction that from these hallowed grounds where slaves labor to build this shrine and citadel to liberty and democracy, let us acknowledge from the indigenous Native Americans to those who recently received citizenship, from the African Americans to those whose foreparents came from Europe in every corner of the globe, from the wealthy to those struggling to make it, from every human being, regardless of their choices, that this is our country. As such, teach us, O oh God. As such, teach us, O oh God, to live in it, to love in it, be healed in it, and reconciled to one another in it, lest we missed kingdom's goals. To your glory, majesty, dominion, and power, forever hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah, in the strong name of our collective faith. Amen. Thanks for that, Babo. Um, yeah, beautiful prayer. And um, I will just add for further viewing, if you haven't yet, be sure to watch uh, Amanda Gorman's um, poem, The Hill We Climb. I think I ended up watching it about 10 times this, this week, but um, make sure here, I'll actually just drop a link in there um, so everyone has it. Um, but it probably was the my favorite part of um, the inauguration. As Bob said, it's, a, it's a, um, an interesting line um, we walk <laughs> um, with our faiths and with our involvement in um, a country, a nation, a group of people working towards um, a better life and working towards um, human rights and justice and peace and how those things necessarily intersect. Um, and so we must live out our faith in ways that do look political. And at the same time, um, we want to also be, be constantly evaluating our own actions and beliefs and thoughts and making um, sure that they align as best they can with our calling um, to build the kingdom of God um, over and above any country, America included, however um, special some of us were raised to believe it is. Um, so uh, just a note, I know um, celebrate the joy um, that it brings um, and let's keep working. Let's uh, keep figuring out how to make this place um, a better place for everyone to live. Um, so that'll be my little pitch, but be sure to watch um, that poetry reading if you've not. She is amazing, and I hope to hear much more from her. I uh, went, and if those of you who, um, who are interested, she has a book for pre-order, um, um, and I, I pre-ordered it. Won't come out till next September, but <laughs> we'll look forward to that. Um, I'm, I'm sure she got just a ton of sales after she did that. Well, now is the time in our service for communion. So if you don't have uh, elements with you, go ahead and grab them, um, whatever you might have nearby. Um, we, uh, as we've been in quarantine doing church, we uh, have made a habit of using the elements we have. And we like to note that although we tend to use crackers or bread or some mix of that at church and then grape juice and sometimes wine. Um, there's nothing magical about those things specifically, right? That's just a tradition that we hold. That's just um, the faith tradition that we come from uses those to represent what Jesus used um, on the night of the last supper. But in reality, it the taking of communion is about our togetherness and our connection to one another. Anthony, I just, I was just like, what is that? And I was like, is that Lady Gaga? And it certainly is Lady Gaga. So thank you for that, Anthony. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it just caught my eye and I had to say something. 
Um, I love you. Um, okay, so I have a Danish butter cookie, as we often uh, do, working through a tin for about you know two months or so, and coffee today. Um, but whatever it is you have, hopefully I've bought you enough time to grab something. I saw a couple of you sneak away. I'm going to read for us um, a prayer this morning called God is like a movement. Um, and I love this one. Uh, and I hope and I hope you do, too. But it is works well as a reminder, as a forming prayer for a community like ours and for um, a reminder of how communion works in the feast that we are invited to. Um, so hear this prayer before we take these elements. God is like a movement, love growing, rowdy with aspiration, adapting and creating in the directions of liberation, using beauty to inspire, painting dreams across creation, feeding the bread of life to all who hunger for justice. Weary but alive with hope, fueled with tears and grit and memories of saints past, going nose to nose with evil planted firmly in truth, working, writing, singing, arrests and threats, slander and shame. It is sacred labor, but laughter too. Whatever you have to bring is enough. Loaves and fishes are made into feasts. Can you hear the invitation? It extends to all who desire freedom. I would like to believe that each time we take communion, we can think of these words and this invitation extended to all who desire freedom and remember that loaves and fishes are made into feasts and what you have is enough. So with that in mind, I invite you each to take the elements, the bread and the wine as it were together as we remember this invitation. May it be so, amen. And yes, thank you for dropping those elements in the chat. My favorite part. All right, morning guys. I'm gonna take out announcements. As usual, the gathering is Wednesday at 7.30 and Philosophy is Thursday nights at six, both via the Zoom link. Um, and then just a heads up, starting February 24th through March 31st, um, we will be restarting Atheism for Lent that Aaron leads. That will be at 8 p.m. in place of the gathering on Wednesday nights. So if you're interested, Aaron is going to start a Facebook event page where you can sign up for that and get all the info. Um, and then the next round of blood drives will be Thursday, April 8th and Thursday, May 20. And Bob, if I could ask you to drop that sign-in link, that would be super helpful. Um, and then finally, just a reminder that if anyone has any needs right now, please reach out to any of us on leadership and we can do whatever we can to help out. All right, I'm gonna pass it on to Aaron now. Thanks. Thanks, Angie. Yeah, can you believe that um, Ash Wednesday, Lent, the beginning of, of Lenten season is actually February 17th in like, what is that? Three weeks? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, always comes up so fast. So now is that time of the service. We set aside for prayer requests, words of thanksgiving, a time to express our joys and our concerns. And uh, we'll, we'll pray and we'll listen to each other and we'll sit with each other. Um, is there anybody this morning that has something they'd like to share? I will start if I if I if I may. Sure, it's, sure it's, it's it's both concern and joy. I don't know, kind of mixed feelings about that. My little niece, uh, she has been already diagnosed with uh, ADHD, uh, and now it turns out that she also has a working memory deficit. So she has been struggling at school quite a lot and and all that kind of thing. So I hope that you know her her family, my my sister will be able to deal with that, find ways how she can flourish, how she can still be, you know, uh, you know, what, what, what she is. I mean, she is a great athlete and, and all that. So I just hope that she's not going to get discouraged because of that or that she's not going to struggle too much at school and all that. So if you could 
keep her in, in, in your prayers. Absolutely. Let's pray. Loving God, we um, share in Vitt's concerns and hopes for his niece. We pray for her well-being holistically, um, her, her spirit, her mind. Uh, we, we pray that she might um, receive the support she needs um, as she's recently been diagnosed with ADHD and all the all the challenges that come with that, we ask that she might feel loved and supported and cared for and um, just know a kind of rich, rich life that um, Vit and his family uh, just so, so want for her. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Thanks, Vit. Somebody else. And you can always put it in the chat window if, if you're more comfortable with putting it there. You don't have to unmute. Um, I, I want to, um, before I forget, Abe, who most of you I think know who Abe is, a big part of our community. Um, he's, he actually had to fly back to Illinois this week. Um, terrible tragedy in his family. His niece um, drowned actually in Costa Rica. Um, and Abe asked if, if I would bring this up and share this, this, this prayer request um, as his family is in deep, deep grief over that. And um, let's, let's pray for Abe and his family now. Loving God, we lift up Abe and his entire family as they're just grieving this unspeakable loss, this unspeakable tragedy. And we pray for their comfort. We pray that they might find solace in the arms of each other at this time. Uh, we, just, we just lift up Abe in particular as, as he is uh, grappling with this situation. May he know our love and support and the love and support of his family at this time. And we commit his niece into your, uh, into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, anybody else this morning? Um, I have one. <clears throat> Sorry, I have one, but it's more like um, it is something I'm feeling, but I feel like maybe a lot of people are also feeling this. Just um, as we enter, <laughs> as we're like getting close to 10, 11 months of quarantine, like just feeling like, anxiety um, about like all the things that we have put on hold but also still need to do and like how to approach that and like just that general feeling of like of that of anxiety and being overwhelmed like I think that maybe that might be a good prayer. Sure absolutely yeah I think we all have felt that over the last 11 months if not we're still feeling it you know um, let's let's pray for that thank you Desiree. We lift up um, all those in our lives and, and ourselves in particular, as we are struggling through this pandemic together, but also in some ways isolated, we, we ask for just strength of spirit and, and just, just relief from anxiety. But we, we ask that in the midst of our anxiety that we might um, find um, solace and hope in each other's presence and support. But we pray for all those in our lives, especially those um, struggling with mental illness, um, that they um, might not feel so isolated and alone, that they might receive the care and support they need, um, that, that those who are feeling the most alienated might feel um, the most supported. Give us wisdom, give us uh, just clarity about who we can reach out to and support during these difficult times. Give us the heart and the mind of Christ for each other now and, and forevermore. Amen. Well, with that, I'm going to, I think I'm going to hand it over to you, Max. I was going to say, I actually have a prayer request. Oh, please. Yes. I know. Usually when I unmute at that point, it's to take over. Okay. I was just going to share it. Um, I've prayed um, for a close friend of our families back in Arizona, Levi, um, before he was born with a very rare um, brain disorder. He and his sister are actually some of the only people in the country um, with the specific disorder. So his life has just been marred with complications and um, in and out of group homes. Um, he's had really severe addiction disorders. Um, anyway, he overdosed on Wednesday um, and was declared legally brain dead. Um, and it was at that point that um, the hospital called my mother because he had listed her <laughs> um, as the DNR contact, um, which, as you can probably imagine, created chaos with um, his um, actually bio actual biological family. And so my mom has had to be 
working through that this week, um, trying to figure out what, like what that even means, what her responsibility is in that. And then yesterday, um, after a couple of days of the doctors trying to get permission to disconnect life support, uh, he actually woke up and he is responsive um, and combative and um, essentially um, his brain has severe swelling, but, and no one will give them like a specific prognosis, but in some ways they have, um, the doctors are guessing that it's possible that the uniqueness of his brain um, because of his disorder um, made whatever happened um, either less um, understandable to the, to the medical staff, like seeing brain patterns or maybe in some way has even benefited him. They don't know, they really don't know. Um, they had declared him brain dead for three days, um, but he's awake now. So <laughs> that's a lot, but that's my family. That's remarkable. That's, that's yeah. remarkable. Yeah. So obviously there's still a lot of pain and grief and recovery around that um, because it happened within a group home um, and it's very much connected to his ongoing addictions. So there's a lot of pain and sorrow and a long road of that um, that is always present, um, but obviously some grief mixed in in, a, in an acute way, but then also hope and gratefulness um, that he's actually alive. So if you could just keep, his name's Levi um, and his last name's Levine and their family's struggling um, even, even more than my family. So um, if we could just pray for them. Absolutely, let's pray. We lift up Levi um, right now and, and all that he's going through and um, just his suffering, we pray for the relief of. And we ask that uh, Max's mom and, and Levi's family, that all these people might, um, just be given clarity and wisdom and know how best to proceed. But we ask that Levi might receive the care and the support that he needs most of all, that he might experience um, just some measure of healing and just renewal. And we just lift up um, all of them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Max. And then I, I guess I'll, I'll turn it over to you now. Thank you. And Herman, I see yours. Um... Uh, a, a happy report, um, completely recovered from COVID, your friends. Um, thanks for sharing. That's always great news when we check in on these Sundays and we hear the pain and the grief and the sorrow and we hold that. It is nice sometimes when, when there are positive <laughs> updates to hear that. So thanks for sharing that with us, Herman. We rejoice with you. Um, all right, I will be sharing a little song um, it's, it's, it's interesting, I realized I had a whole list of songs at most times that I'm working on and trying to figure out which, which to play at church and stuff, um, and which ones like I need to learn, um, which ones take a while. And it just, um, once we moved to the quarantine, I was like, oh yeah, that I had a whole list of songs that um, I was wanting to bring to the church because of how well they fit our community that have just been put by the wayside for a while. So this is one of those. Um, it intersects a lot with um, themes that we talk about an awful lot. Um, and we talked about last week, and I think a little bit um, we'll be talking about this week too. But it's one by Gunger, surprise, surprise. Um, but it's called uh, Let Bad Religion Die. So um, I will share that with you now. you see? Okay, sorry. With the bomb strapped to his chest With the bullhorn in her hand. They both bow their heads and pray To do God's will fulfill and walk into the crowd If all the outsiders are wrong If your questions don't belong 
churches do you ever go to where you sing a song or hear a song about let bad religion die and praying to God to let let religion cease if it's you know uh, promoting violence and hate that kind of thing that's great Max thank you I've been studying indigenous religions lately aka Native American spirituality and wisdom because I find it to be really interesting and helpful I think there are aspects of indigenous religion many of us can resonate with and learn from in our, in our post-evangelical state. That being said, there's a tendency to romanticize and to fetishize indigenous religion today, especially among us non-native Western, Westerners. So let me just say from the outset that the point today isn't to do that or to say that indigenous religions are better than Christianity or other world religions or vice versa. I, I also think we need to begin from a place of humility and acknowledge that we can't actually fully understand indigenous religions as non-native people. I'm reminded of a story Tink Tinker tells. Tink Tinker is a well-known professor of Native American religious studies. And uh, thanks to Vit, by the way, for sending this video to me. Um, Tink Tinker is also a member of the Osage Nation. He says that many times students will tell him, oh, my worldview is just like yours, meaning they've left behind a traditional evangelical worldview and adopted a more wage one or perhaps a more mystical form of Christianity. Tink responds and says, no, it's, it's actually impossible for you to have my worldview because a worldview is something you're born into. It's something you acquire over many years of being immersed and raised within a particular culture, time and place and language. You don't actually get to choose your worldview any more than you get to choose how tall you are. Now, Tink would acknowledge that we can obviously change our beliefs and our views. And that means that 
to some degree, we can perhaps alter our worldview, but we cannot change the core fundamentals of it. There are aspects of our worldview that are inherited through the language and culture we're raised in that in a sense, you know, programmed our brains to perceive the world in specific ways. And this, this programming um, is not something you can just undo. And it very well may be something that is neurologically set from a young age. A good example of this can be seen in recent studies done in the way certain cultures see colors. A study was done with the Himba tribe in Namibia who do not have a word for blue, which means they don't see blue. Blue for them is just another shade of green. So the sky is, is green to them. Likewise, there's good evidence that most people in the ancient world didn't see blue either. In the Odyssey, Homer describes the ocean as wine dark and other colors, but he never uses the word blue. He describes the sky as bronze. Likewise, in ancient Icelandic, Hindu, Chinese, Arabic, and even in original Hebrew texts, you will not find the word blue. Isn't that interesting? This doesn't mean that people didn't see blue. We don't, we don't know what they saw. But the theory is that people only see blue if they live in a culture where there is a word for blue. Is, isn't that interesting? You'd think that something as plain as, as the blue sky would be obvious to everybody, but it's not. So language itself creates the ability for our brains to see certain colors and not others. Makes you wonder what else our language and culture allows us and doesn't allow us to see and perceive. This is called cognitive linguistics. This area of study is, is called cognitive linguistics. And it suggests that language actually creates consciousness rather than the other way around. Language creates consciousness. But I bring it up because it's a perfect example for why we need to respect and take seriously the differences between worldviews, specifically the differences between a Euro-Christian worldview, which is ours, and an indigenous worldview. We're quite literally not seeing the world the same, nor can we. And I think that's, that's kind of exciting because I think that means that there are literally other aspects of reality out there that we can't see, but others can. And maybe, just maybe, if we are open enough and listen to those with different worldviews over time, we can start to see some of those other colors, so to speak, perhaps. You know, we can expand our consciousness. This is my hope, that we can expand our consciousness, at least somewhat. And, and so that's why I love studying indigenous religions. There's so much to learn that's really enlightening. So let's dive in. It's important to first understand that indigenous religions do not do theology, at least in the way that we define theology usually, meaning indigenous religions don't try and understand God. Indigenous religions find the systematic study of God as both presumptuous and impossible. Their religion and spirituality is non-credal. It is non-confessional. The point is not to have the correct beliefs about God or to make claims about the nature of God as if anyone even could make such claims. The point is to live a life that is harmonious with one's community and the rest of creation. That said, I think the most important thing to understand about indigenous religions, the, the main idea that so much else is predicated upon and the idea that really distinguishes their worldview apart from ours is that it's non-hierarchical in nature. It is a flat, horizontal way of looking at the world rather than a horizontal or a hierarchical, rather than a hierarchical in a vertical way, which is really the foundation of the Euro-Christian worldview. And there's a few different ways of understanding this difference. The first way I would say is ontological, meaning the nature of being itself. Indigenous religions do not have an ontological hierarchy for living things meaning birds, bears, deer, buffalo, fish. These are all people to them and beings equal to us. There is no anthropocentrism here. Humanity doesn't occupy a special, a special place in creation that's over and above other living things. Rather humanity, human beings are just one kind of person among many different people in nature. This, of course, translates into a non-exploitative relationship with the world and one that seeks harmony and balance 
rather than domination and rulership, which is, a, which is what you find in a Euro-Christian worldview. And often the scripture employed for this is Genesis 1, 26, which says, let us make humankind in our, in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and dominion over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, end quote. So, so that kind of ontological hierarchy with humans at the top of creation is kind of hard baked into both Judaism and Christianity and has influenced a lot of the way we've looked at the rest of the world over the centuries. Historically speaking, in, in the colonial period, the thinking was white European Christians were at the top of, of creation with a strata of other lesser human beings beneath them, like Africans and indigenous people, and then animals and then inanimate things like the earth and the land itself. This of course leads to a kind of exploitative relationship with everything and everyone, right? A need to dominate, a need to colonize and conquer, and of course convert, which is what we saw when European Christians first came to the Americas. They came with both the cross and the sword to both conquer and convert. And that colonial and hierarchical, hierarchical worldview is still very much part of the American religious and political worldview, right? We can talk more about that a little bit later. Another example of how indigenous religions are non-hierarchical in nature can be seen in how they don't think in terms of good and evil. Uh, in fact, they don't even have a word for evil. That concept of, of kind of cosmological evil was introduced by European Christians who see all of creation, the entire cosmos, as being locked in a, in a kind of cosmological battle between the forces of good and evil, like God and Satan, uh, sin and righteousness, flesh and spirit. Indigenous people just don't see the world that way. The world for them is not a fallen place in need of redemption or in need of a savior. It is what it is. The world is the way it was meant to be. Indigenous people would see things that we would call evil, like death, as just part of the cosmic balance of things. Again, it's a flat, non-hierarchical way of thinking that, that doesn't assign moral categories to things like suffering and death. Suffering and death is, is not part of some kind of great evil that God must defeat and do away with one day. It's just part of the cosmic balance of things, like day and night, winter and spring. That the Euro-Christian worldview, on the other hand, sees the entire cosmos as being locked in a battle between these opposing forces of, of good and evil, with good needing to always come out on top, right? In fact, this way of thinking was the impetus for much of the, Euro the European colonizing of the New World. It was believed that the indigenous people of the Americas were enslaved to darkness, right? We were taught that they were enslaved to darkness and sin and evil, right? They practiced witchcraft and these pagan religions that we needed to set them free from with both the light of God and, and the light of Western civilization. We needed to both save their souls and civilize them, we, we believed, meaning our ancestors and perhaps even many contemporary evangelicals, right? The, the, the final example I want us to look at today for how an indigenous worldview differs from our own has to do with this, this two-world split between the secular and the sacred, right? That two-world split between the secular and the sacred is so endemic to this Euro-Christian worldview. However, the, the indigenous worldview holds that there is no hierarchical, that there is no hierarchy between secular and sacred. Everything is sacred. In this way, indigenous religions are not really religious in the way that we usually think of religion. Indigenous religions are fully integrated into daily activities. Everything is seen as, as a kind of spiritual practice. Hunting, fishing, the cultivation of crops, building shelters. You know, again, it's, it's a flat, non-hierarchical way of looking at life that doesn't separate life into stratifications of secular and sacred, the religious and the non-religious. Now, ironically, secularism is actually a very Christian idea. This idea that there is a secular world and a sacred world, a, a religious part of life and a non-religious part of life, this is actually a Christian invention, you could say. This is, this is a very Christian idea, ironically, that rose to prominence during the Enlightenment as a reaction to a world that was becoming increasingly scientific and liberal and therefore you know, outside the control of the church. And so the church withdrew from culture to a great degree and, and declared all this other stuff secular and non-spiritual and, and lesser than. We're all familiar with this thinking, I bet. 
many of us were raised being told, you can't listen to secular music or watch secular TV. <laughs> I know I was, I was told that. Uh, you, you can only consume Christian entertainment and Christian media. You can't go to a secular university. You have to go to, you have to, go to a Christian university. You can't, uh, you know, beware of your secular friends. They'll lead you astray. We've all heard this stuff before. This hierarchical bifurcated world of the secular and the sacred is ironically a very Christian idea. The, the church created secularism when it could have declared all of life sacred and holy, but it didn't. Imagine how much different Western culture would be, how much different America would be if the church had embraced science from the get-go, you know, or embraced other religions, embraced other cultures, embraced the arts, and embraced all of life as, as sacred and holy. Imagine how different our world would be. So those are the, the, the different ways I think it's best for us to understand the differences between an indigenous worldview and a, and a Euro-Christian one. And again, I think it comes down to a difference in seeing the world in a hierarchical way, in a non-hierarchical way. That's kind of the key paradigm. And, and how we think in those terms really influences a broad array of other topics from the cosmological and the metaphysical to the social and the political. I hope that makes sense. I, I hope that's somewhat clear. I know it's a lot of information at once. It's, it's a really big topic. I have some discussion questions, but I wanna um, open it up for dialogue now by just simply asking, does, does anyone have any, any general questions or comments about, about my little presentation today? Aaron, hi, is I have a quick question. Yeah. Um, just because I'm doing a lot of study around this for my doctoral program, but I was curious when you say indigenous, are you also referring to like African American, um, not, not like practices necessarily here, but back in Africa, do you include any of that in this talk or, or no? I'm, I'm really, this, the, the research I did when they speak of indigenous religion, my understanding is they're mostly or entirely talking about Native American. So that word indigenous pertains to the kind of Western European perspective, which is mostly about this kind of American, Native American uh, take. That's a good question. Um, I don't know much about indigenous African religions. I barely know anything about Native American ones, but yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Other, other comments or questions? So one of my discussion questions is, what aspects of indigenous religion do you resonate with? What speaks to you about some of this and, and where you're at on your journey? Does anybody wanna share um, what resonates with them from this? Um, can I start off? Yeah, please as well. Um, yeah, no, I think this is like so on point, especially given the, um, the talk we had last, the last few um, services where we're talking about the need for, um, you know, the white privilege class. And I'm using white just as a general term, not as, not as I'm being politically sensitive around that, but okay. Anyways, hopefully you get that. I'm not offending anyone, but um, yeah. it's seen as like sort of the power structure is created around our belief system. And the more reading I'm doing, just like in my academic program around this, I'm learning that um, it's just very fascinating how much of our politics um, in, and our policies that we make for social, uh, just the social order of our world, um, they're, they're fundamentally, fundamentally based on our beliefs, which is kind of mind blowing to me because I always looked at like a separation between church and state, especially in America. But the more I'm learning about this, the more I see that there is a clear correlation. And then now that you're sharing this talk today, it's so eye-opening that um, we as colonizers uh, would come here and just kind of say, hey, move over. Whatever you've been doing is like bad and we're gonna like show you the right way. And it seems like we've continued that for now centuries. Absolutely, no, I'm, I really appreciate you um, picking up on that insight. Um, I, I think you're absolutely, I think, I, I think the key difference between these worldviews is really about power dynamics and you're picking up on that. In other words, the, the hierarchical nature of the Euro-Christian worldview and the various ways it manifests itself is really about power and identifying those, you know, who have it and those who don't. Identifying those who get to wield it 
and those those who are subjects of power. You know, when you think about the, the historical ways the Euro-Christian worldview has aided and abetted colonization, imperialism, and capitalism, it's hard not to see European Christianity uh, entirely in that light. And as a religion that has functioned in large part as the ideological foundation for Western imperialism and, 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 an, and an expression of Western imperialism rather than an authentic expression of the crucified Christ, right? A God who suffered and died under imperial power. I think the Christianity we inherited from Europe, uh, Isabel, uh, bears little resemblance to the Christianity of, of Jesus of Nazareth, if I may be so bold. But you're right, it's really about power dynamics. Really good point. Hey, Aaron. Uh, hey. Yeah, it reminds me um, of what, what you just said about the power dynamics of this trip I went to... Uh, uh, a mission trip in Chennai, India, and uh, we visited one of the first churches uh, there. And I noticed that um, while I was there, like every sort of plaque or something honoring the the people before that started it, they were all part of the military. They were all like generals, lieutenants. And it just made me think about like how sort of that power and using using religion as a sort of i don't know not a vessel or channel i'm trying to think of the word maybe like a hmm, just a way of invoking power over a certain or colonizing basically um and restructuring uh the the place of that i forget who colonized india um but it just it, what's that the british the british right and so it just it just seeing that and seeing like these people that weren't from india that sort of built this church and they're part of the military and all this other stuff it it made me it just didn't feel right in a way i guess that that's basically what it um how it came down to I was just like something about this just feels wrong <laughs> I don't know um and that's what it reminded me of just your talk so yeah that's it well thank you cool thank you for sharing that perspective yeah I I, I think kind of what we're really talking about today is decolonizing Christianity <laughs> I mean for lack I mean that's actually a term that people use you know what does it mean to decolonize our, our Christianity I, I think it comes down to understanding that the Christianity we inherited from medieval Europe is actually really different than I think the Christianity we find, uh, you know, Jesus talking about, so to speak, and, and this, this gospel about a, a God who gave up power and became the servant of all and was ultimately persecuted and brutalized and, and killed under imperial power, right? Um, you know, the, the idea that that story and that God could be weaponized into something that helped European Christians dominate, colonize, and brutalize so much of the world, I, I think should shock all of it. I mean, it, it should really shock everybody. Um, that quote from Rain Wilson escapes me now, but, uh, you know, we, I think ultimately deconstruction, I think, is, is a process of decolonizing our Christianity and, and realizing how much of it, how much of the Christianity we inherited is really about power dynamics from a kind of Eurocentric world worldview. But yeah, thank you, David. Um, I had something that uh, kind of reminded me when you were talking about like the vertical hierarchy that yeah. is established. Um, I took the sociology class. I can't remember what the focus of the class was, but one of the things I remember that really stuck with me was why we, why a lot of people in our Western culture uh, associate things with being higher up as better or stronger or more powerful, when really there's no reason that something up in one direction would be greater than something lower. That's kind of like an artificial thing. And part of the reason for that, apparently, I don't remember <laughs> where, where this came from, but since we're terrestrial beings and we can't we don't have wings, we can't fly, we can't go high up in the air. So we associate things that are high up. So if you're a rich, powerful executive, you want to have like the penthouse that's like up on the top floor so you can like look down on everyone, uh, metaphorically. And, and 
but um, and literally, but uh, but it's interesting. Maybe some of these indigenous cultures could see that that's so arbitrary, and it's it's not. If you think that you are on par, and you you and the the bird that's flying up in the air are kind of on this are the same, then you kind of dismantle. There's no, you know, there's no vertical uh, categorizing. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I just I thought that was interesting to think like, oh, yeah. there's no reason something up higher in the air is is mightier than something like low, like in the ground, even. You know, it's like a yeah. Totally and I don't know much. I don't I don't know much about indigenous religion cosmology really, as far as like whether or not because I know from the ancient Near Eastern cosmology, you know, they believe that that they're they're above the heavens was the you know not just in Judaism and uh, Christianity, but in other other ancient Near Eastern religions, the thinking was that, you know, the heavens were the abodes of the gods, right? That up, that there's a dome above us, right? The earth is flat, there's a dome, and above the dome, right, is the realm of the divine beings, right? And so, you know, even, even in Christianity, we're told that Jesus ascended back to heaven, right? Because, of course, we, that's where God is. He's up there. But now, now we know there's nothing up there but empty space, <laughs> empty space, right? But, I mean, back then, it was the ancient cosmology was up there is heaven. Right now we know up there is well down there is up there too because there's space straight down you know, so um, that ancient cosmology that up there is where you know God and the spirits live that's that's shared by a lot of cultures not just it's that that's not just a Christian or a Jewish idea, um, and I think even my understanding even Native Americans uh, you know uh, traditionally believe that there's you know spirits in the sky right and that this, I, I don't quite understand you know, those religions uh, at all, <laughs> to a great degree. So uh, any, anybody want to speak to that? Nathan, you're, you're, you're uh, studying mythology. Does all this jive? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, uh, the next weekend, I start my uh, Indigenous Peoples Mythology class on oh. Native American and Indigenous. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, I, I can't wait to like roll that into what I'm about to be going through. Um, but uh, I just got through with my African one. And that was kind of an East meets West in a sense, because they did have an understanding that only, only, only their interest, it was interesting is that God was among us at first. And then he got tired of, not tired of us, but he couldn't put up with us anymore. The, the earth got too crowded and there were too many demands of people upon God. So he left earth and went up. Interesting. And then there would be like a rope that he, you know, could go back and forth. And then the, the Eurisha, the, the spirits would come and help out and administer, but God left. The Christian version is mankind was banished <laughs> from God's presence. Interesting also is that, you know, when you were talking, Aaron, about the harmony or the, the way of like the level playing field, that kind of reminded me of our creation story in the garden where it was a level playing field man woman god everybody was equal you know we walked among each other there was no but then after the fall of man interestingly that's where we get patriarchy because people think the bible instituted patriarchy because you know the bible says you know man shall be over woman but if you look at the story um that's the punishment that was never the way it was supposed to be that's God punishing people, <laughs> saying woman will, will suffer in childbirth and, you know, and man will till the grounds and it will hurt. And, and there would be this, this idea of hierarchy and then God would be above. But that was never, you could interpret it, that that was not the way our own creation story went. But it was the system we have now is the broken system, not the God system from the beginning. That's good. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, thank you for those thoughts. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. I, and I want to hear more about your uh, indigenous religion study in general. I want to, yeah, more about what well, we'll get together. Let's get together and uh, we'll, we'll chat about it. <laughs> um, cool. Thanks, Nathan. Somebody else want to comment? Maybe just a little bit uh, here, uh, kind of from my experience here in Central America. And uh, well, it's kind of symbolic that you are talking about uh, Native American uh, religions or spirituality today, because uh, here in El Salvador, the, the indigenous, the Nahua speakers, as they denominate themselves, uh, they are kind of uh, remembering the, the, the massacre that, that happened in 1932, where basically, you know, the, the vast majority of uh, the indigenous population was was killed, and that's the reason why El Salvador has the 
smallest number of uh, indigenous people in the whole Central and uh, South America. And uh, since the, even though there are there are there are differences uh, in their thinking because. Um, the Mayan and Aztec uh, religions are, are definitely uh, different and hierarchical uh, in, in that sense, right? Uh, I, I think that uh, the, the, the encounters that uh, they've had with uh, Christianity, there are some stories from these areas where the first uh, missionaries, uh, colonizers like came, they gave some images of either Christ or the Virgin Mary. And they went, uh, obviously, and they put them into their corn fields believing that by doing that, they are going to have a better harvest, uh, you know, this year. And obviously when the priests saw that, they thought, you know, that's, that's a sacrilege. That's, that's, you know, blasphemy. That's, that's something horrendous. And they killed uh, the people who were like found responsible uh, for that. So as you said about that difference between the religion we've inherited, the Christianity we've inherited from the middle ages and the religion of Jesus, I mean, there are, there are huge, uh, differences and you know really really sad uh, you know encounters between the between the two uh, cultures and how they how they interact and, and all that so kind of an important uh, weekend for for uh, our uh, Nahuas people here in, in El Salvador. Wow, thank you. I've never heard of the Nahuas. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes in literature you will find pipiles and lencas, but obviously, again, those are terms that the Spanish, uh, you know, gave uh, to them. Sure. They don't uh, describe themselves uh, in that way. My wife's uh, great-grandfather was killed in that, in that massacre. Wow. Uh, her grandmother was 11 years old, and since that time, people stopped speaking Nahuatl, which is the indigenous uh, language. They stopped wearing the traditional dress, what's called refajo, Right. And, uh, you know, they, they kept it like just secret, just just few people. And you, you could speak now what only secretly. Right. And if you you were punished for for speaking it in, in public, for example, and, and all that. So, you know, pretty, pretty sad, sad history of uh, colonial rule here. And it bears striking resemblance to, you know, events in the United States, you know, and other yeah. aspects of mm -hmm. you know, the, the new world, right? Um, European colonization. Yeah. yeah. That perspective. And I'm seeing a really good comment by Stephen in the chat here. Wrecking, you know, um, you see, he says, I feel like I've actually found this theme of melding or blurring the boundaries of sacred and secular in differing ways being emphasized within Christianity, maybe more strongly in other denominations and others, recognizing the presence of God in nature, in moments, in certain actions, in people. In fact, Jesus even speaks to this in the gospel. So in some way, I feel like this should be a core part of Christianity that makes it not all that different from the indigenous worldview. Yeah, no, I resonate with that too. I, I, I think the entire idea of the incarnation <clears throat> of God becoming human you know, heaven, you know, merging with earth, so to speak there, uh, the divine and the human becoming uh, united in, you know, in, in the flesh. Uh, I think that idea is, is deeply horizontal. I, this idea of, of, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, um, and this, the so-called secular and the sacred becoming merged. I, I think that is endemic to original Christianity that we need to reclaim. And, and, and the only way to do that is to kind of decolonize Christianity, right? from these Euro-Christian ideas that are about colonization and domination and, and things like that. But yeah, thank you, Steve. Other, other thoughts today? I think that's, that's a really good point. And I, and I think it's, it, it makes it um, important to note, just like as you were saying, Christianity started as an ancient tribal religion, right? Like we, it obviously became so much more and it was wedded to imperialism and militarism and power. So it is like, there are still elements that we've backed it like that's not that unfamiliar i think the problem though is um steve and i won't speak on your behalf but when i think of i totally resonated with that and when i think of those kinds of examples it's all about power right and like just even the little microaggressions and the little ways in which those little phrases of like the breaking of the secular sacred uh wall but it's almost always in a case 
that brings power to the invoker, right? Like the blessings and the, I'll say a little prayer for you and the, oh, isn't God so glorious? And, you know, in response to trauma or in response to sorrow, it's like, oh, but our God is so good and powerful and, you know, God's going to just bless you and God's going to heal you. It's all about maintaining this, these structures of power and comfort, at least all the ones I'm thinking of. I'm sure there's probably some, um, some uh, examples that poke holes in this. But I think that's exactly right, right? So it's like over 2000 years, we've gotten really good at taking those pieces and we've been given and we've inherited structures that, that, pull, that know how to pull on the strings of power, right? So it's like, we will maintain this power that comes along with being able to wield the pass through between sacred and, uh, and secular we can decide when that happens and we can use it to our advantage. And I think that's that's part of the disconnect, right? And in, in that so many other traditions have done a way better job at maintaining the humility that goes along with sacred and secular being flat. Um, whereas we've been like, oh, cool, sacred and secular flat, that means, <laughs> right? Yeah. I can, just, I can develop a whole religion around this. And <laughs> we have. Anyway, yeah. that's a really good comment. Yeah, yeah, good, good stuff, Max. And I, I think for a lot of us, deconstruction away from evangelicalism has meant losing those hierarchical, deconstructing those hierarchical power structures that we inherited from evangelicalism. You know, when you think about what makes evangelicalism evangelicalism, it's tied into power, and specifically right-wing power, patriarchy, heteronormativity, right? Um, keeping keeping the, the so-called other at bay and under wraps and keeping white Christian men specifically, right, at the top, right? And so deconstruction is not really just about, you know, losing, you know, your faith or changing your, it's really about deconstructing those hierarchical worldviews and opening yourself up to more flat, horizontal, you know, understanding of reality. Uh, I love that. That's really good, Max. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any other comments? Well, thanks for being here and thanks for a great conversation, everybody. Um, we are officially done, so I'm dismissing you. Uh, as always, you can hang out and chat if you'd like to. Um, but I hope you have a great week and we'll see you again next time, hopefully. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.